everybody. It's Thursday. It's 2 p.m. Eastern, and this is the latest edition of Bold Leaders in Learning. I'm Brandon Bustide, president of University Partners at Kaplan, and I'm really looking forward to a conversation today with Ann Kirshner, education executive, strategist, entrepreneur, professor. There's a whole bunch of hats that Ann has worn across this uh, education sector, and, um, and I think we're going to pull all of those things into a, a real look on the horizon around where higher education is headed. We might talk a little bit about K-12 or, well, anything we feel like talking about, Ann, that's the fun of bold leaders and learning. So first of all, thank you very much for joining me. I'm sure folks would love to hear a little bit about your fascinating background and experiences. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit more about yourself and then we'll dive into the conversation from there. Sure. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I guess Thursdays uh, are, are days for a bold thinking. Um, good. It's kind of get ready for the weekend, right? Definitely. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, what jumps into my mind for this conversation is that pretty much every wonderful thing that's ever happened to me in my life happened because of education. Um, my mother came to this country. Um, she was a Holocaust survivor and learned English when I went to public school. Um, I went to college for free at the State University of New York at, at, at Buffalo. And then um, after a, a time at University of Virginia, found my way to, to Princeton. And so public education um, and then uh, graduate education were really, to me, the jumping off points for the, for the rest of my life. Um, I have sort of an eclectic background um, in, uh, in both uh, education, uh, but also in technology and media because I left uh, academics after finishing a PhD and spent 25 years in, uh, in technology and, and media, in uh, cable television, satellite television, whatever was new and, and different um, and probably the strangest corner of my, uh, of my career, the five years that I spent uh, at the National Football League, which prepared me for some things in education in, in weird ways. We can get into that, into that later. Um, anyway, I'm delighted to be here, delighted to think about um, what, uh, what lenses we can use to think about the next horizon for education. And I can't think of anybody better than you to do that with. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. So we'll dive in, you know, I, uh, well, I've, you know, I've kind of, I've followed your posts on LinkedIn and I know we, we had the pleasure of being on a panel together recently where, uh, uh, we were talking about uh, a number of things at the ASU GSV conference, but you'd written an article earlier this year that was uh, really framed around nine innovations that higher education could, uh, could and should consider. And I wanted to maybe kind of walk through a couple of those and have you kind of expand on the points, because one of the things you said in there was that higher education needs to get impatient. And I really liked how you, you, know, you described it as impatience, but Tell us a little bit more about what, uh, what you said and wrote about from the context of that. It was one of the things when I came back into academics uh, after those 25 years in the, in the private sector, um, the pace of academics and the acceptance of the slow pace of change struck me as, you know, on the one hand, kind of fun and, and wonderful. Um, and on the other hand, Manding, maddening. I remember a faculty member saying, oh yeah, to redo a gen ed curriculum usually takes about 10 years or, or so to, to really make. And I thought to myself, what about the students in the meantime who are graduating? I mean, knowing that, you know, we get all excited about graduation and we look out in that, in that beautiful auditorium or stadium or whatever, 
half the students who started aren't there to finish, half of them. And we're so self-congratulatory about that. And listen, I love graduations too, but what about the kids who didn't make it through? Where's that sense of urgency to serving them? Um, and so it has often struck me that we need to have um, more of a sense that, uh, that change must come. And I do believe that 2020 has created the conditions where more, more and more leaders in higher education understand that change must come. Yeah, and, and you know, I think there's a lot of acceptance of that, but then it's another thing to start to activate on that, right? And to start to build uh, some comfort around it or even create a culture around innovation. And you know, I, I've seen a lot of examples and, and I know you've been involved a, a lot with ASU um, and I think are on the, uh, the board of ASU Ed Plus, I believe. Um, you know, thinking about ASU and the innovation that they're known for and some of the other universities that you've seen really do well on the innovation front. Give me some idea of what's going on there that's so special, right? Is it, is it, is it as, as simple as a dynamic new leader coming in? Are there other kind of what I would consider structural or, uh, or intentional efforts that they're doing that really help rev up that, that attitude towards uh, innovation? It's leadership first, it's leadership second, it's leadership third. Um, you know, culture is the most important thing for institutional change. And um, Michael Crow and I worked together uh, at Columbia University. And then when he went out to ASU, and I, this was around 2002, 2001, um, I worked there for a while as a consultant before moving on to, uh, to CUNY. And um, ASU was a pretty sleepy place in 2001, 2002. Its reputation had always been as a party school um, and uh, you know, faculty did their, did their thing, but there was no sort of emphasis on whether it was uh, cutting edge research or, um, or, or innovation. And you know, fast forward to, to now, um, Michael has inculcated a, a culture of um, of transformation, of, um, of, of not accepting the status quo if the status quo isn't, isn't working. Not necessarily change for its own sake, but, but, but you know, the, the fundamental insight of, um, that has flown from President Crow's administration is that the institution should be judged by who it, who it includes, not who it excludes. That's a fundamental fundamentally different culture way of thinking than higher education has always had, where we gravitate towards those institutions who exclude the most, who are the most competitive, as if that is the metric of, of quality. So I can't say enough about leadership as the, uh, as, as the primary driver, because there's not a faculty member at Arizona State, at least none that I've ever met, who doesn't, who hasn't absorbed that lesson and who doesn't think about transformation and change and innovation in the context of whatever they're doing, whether they're right. teaching English literature or, or whatever. And the fact that all of that has happened while growing the, uh, diversifying the revenue for the university and, and also growing the reputation of the university as a great research institution, that's a pretty amazing trick. Yeah, it's it sure. not a trick, a pretty amazing feat. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I couldn't agree with you more. We're on the same page around, you know, the leadership, 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 uh, you know, point about this. And, you know, it's a lot of how I try to spend my time, right, which is identifying universities, not by whether they're public or private or large or small or prestigious or not, but, but by who their leadership team is uh, comprised of and the degree to which they're a group that's really thinking in bold, visionary and, and you know, kind of futuristic ways in terms of what they can do. I think over time too, as you pointed out at ASU, you know, a, a transformative leader like a Michael Crow eventually starts to build a culture. And then you have this, you know, kind of, you know, self-fulfilling, uh, you know, kind of prophecy where you've got professors who then come to work at ASU because of its reputation for innovation, right? So that, that really matters. And I think more institutions really need to think about what tangible steps can they make? And I, you know, I, I always use the example of like a Wake Forest, right? Where when Nathan Hatch got there, he established an innovation committee of their board of trustees. It's now a standing committee on their board. Well, you know, guess what? They also have a VP of innovation that is a senior cabinet position. So innovation is something that Wake is invested in. It's not just a goal, right? There's really intentional efforts that are done around making sure that happens. So. I'm glad we've touched on that point. Uh, one of the related points that, um, that I wrote about, and I know you and I've talked a little bit about is faculty innovation, right? On one hand, uh, a lot of people are very critical about faculty, uh, typically speaking about faculty as kind of the, uh, you know, the obstacles to innovation and change on campus. And that's certainly true in many cases, but there's also, I think a real renaissance around faculty innovation. We're seeing it in this pandemic era where at an individual classroom level, I guess if we call it that right, virtual or otherwise, at an individual teaching level, they're coming up with a lot of different tweaks, innovations, new pedagogies, right? Things like that. And, and by the way, faculty have been the sources of innovation. All the major MOOCs that have been established were essentially started by college and university faculty. University of Phoenix started by college faculty member, right? You know, you can go on and on and on about examples like this, but tell me about your thoughts of faculty innovation. I mean, you're, you're a faculty member at CUNY. Uh, you've seen this from a lot of angles, I'm sure positive and also a little discouraging, but uh, tell, me, tell me your thoughts on that front. Faculty are by nature entrepreneurs. They're, they're knowledge entrepreneurs. They, they got where they got by, by thinking new thoughts, right? I mean, I, I wrote a dissertation. The whole point of the dissertation was to somehow add one more brick in the wall about how people thought about Victorian fiction in my case. <laughs> um, and so, so, so that should be part of, of what they do. The issue that I would have is that if you have a thousand points of light, you know, all these, all these faculty doing, doing their thing, if there's not the institutional culture to raise that to the level of systemic change, then you have a lot of disconnected, wonderful activity. I mean, how many MOOCs are there that, are, that were created by faculty whose institutions had no interest in online learning? That's not what we do, right? right. So, so faculty went off and did their own thing because they thought that was really that was really cool. But the institution wasn't doing it. Of course, now fast forward to, to 2020 and with a gun to their head, you know, every institution that I know of in the United States made that, you know, quick, quick turnover to um, to online learning. Although I had to laugh, I was reading uh, the other day about, I think it's University of Florida, but there are others where the faculty unions have filed grievances because they don't want to go back to the classroom. They think it's dangerous. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, 
could we, could we line up and sort of a split screen between the faculty who said, hell no, I'll never teach online. And the faculty who are now saying, hell no, I'll not go back into the classroom. So, you know, so, so change happens, but you know, back to what we were saying about, about leadership, you have to build on that change. You have to build it into the culture of the institution so that it's not on the back of any individual, whether that individual is the leader or faculty member, but it's kind of in the, in the drinking water. I think that's really what's missing. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, it starts to get into questions of how faculty are incentivized, right? How they're rewarded, how they're recognized. So whether incentives are directly tied to it or not, you know, the recognition of that innovation, uh, however that's defined, I think is important. And I think we've thought a lot about innovation through a really narrow lens in higher ed. Like we think about tech transfer, right? And IP, and you know, that's a big important part of it, but there's, there's so many different layers of this innovation thing, right? And different ways to motivate and reward faculty for that, including, you know, some rather simple things like interdisciplinary collaboration. I mean, you could call that innovation, but yet we don't have a lot of really great incentives for working outside of silos. And even, you know, thinking about publication, um, you know, faculty get more recognition for publishing uh, journal articles with, with by themselves than they do co-publishing with others, right? And so it's a weird disincentive to collaborate. Um, so a lot, I think, that they that, that institutions of higher ed can work on from a faculty innovation perspective. Um, one of the other things you talked about in your article, you, you, had, you had two separate points in there that were kind of related, and I thought I would ask you about both of them. But you know, one, you said, uh, we should never say vocational anymore with a sneer. And then you also said, it's time to bring continuing ed in from outside, uh, you know, in, in, from, in from the cold. And so, uh, so tell me a little bit more about that because that's obviously been a big theme of the pandemic. It was a theme running into it, but uh, just flesh those points out a little bit more for us. So let me start with um, vocational, which is a dirty word um, in a lot of, a lot of places um, on, a, on a college campus. That, that's not what we do. Um, we don't prepare students for their first job. We prepare students for a lifetime. Well, first of all, all the evidence, you know, Strata and other places have, have shown is that if students don't get a good first job right out of college, the chances are that for the next 10 years, they're going to be out in the cold. So we cannot say that that first job is not important. It's right. hugely important. So we need to have just a fundamental change in allowing the idea of jobs and work not to be viewed as anti-intellectual or somehow not what we do, but that, that's exactly what we, what we do do. And that, you know, that's gonna require a lot of, a lot of different kinds of, of, of thinking. Um, you know, career services tends to be out on some outer edge of, of campus, you know, Siberia. Same thing with, with continuing ed. We've siloed these different parts of education um, as if a student wakes up in the morning and thinks, oh, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for a degree. Oh no, I'm gonna get a credential. Oh no, I'm gonna work online or whatever. It doesn't work that way. It's much more continuous. There's, there's much more, um, much more we can do to kind of break down some of those barriers. And now with huge numbers of people unemployed and needing upskilling, you know, I think it's kind of use it or lose it time for, for higher education to either say, 
no, I'm sorry, that's, that's not what we do. Or, and to be marginalized for the future, or to recognize that we have a responsibility to, to think about what the right balance is between learning and, and earning. Um, you know, the, the instinct that many people in, in higher ed and outside of it have is that that means the death of the liberal arts. It's the right. death of Shakespeare. Not true, not true. You know, you think about yeah. um, some wonderful writing Jamie Marisotis has done and, and Joseph Aoun around the fact that as automation and artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of these things come to the fore, it is just those human skills, empathy, creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, teamwork. I mean, all of these things that we know the liberal arts has a particular um, success at inculcating in, in, in people. Those are the skills that you most need. But we haven't told that story at all. And so we've kind of made it like you have to be a coder or you have to read Shakespeare. No, you have to be a, a coder who reads Shakespeare, and, you know, just to beat up on, on, uh, on yeah. William Shakespeare a, a, a little bit. Um, so I think these are the, these are the lessons you know, don't call them soft skills because that immediately trivializes them. They're, they're human skills, or I think Aoun uses the phrase human, humanic, humanics. Um, there are all different ways to, to describe them, but they are the essence of what computers can't do and probably won't be able to do for a very long time to come. Cultural agility, flexibility, thinking from different perspectives. These are all the skills that will make students successful, not only in their first job, but for a lifetime. Yeah, it's my, it's my favorite comment. It's a both and, not an either or when it comes to the liberal arts and, and specific you know, job or, or skills training. And the, the mix of the two is actually what employers want. So one of my favorite market research uh, tidbits is that uh, among a list of various graduates that an employer would be most likely to hire, the one that wins by a mile on the list that was provided was an English major who has a designation in cybersecurity. So it was pretty much what you said. It's that, the, you know, somebody who reads Shakespeare and also codes, right? So, um, and, and I've said this, I've written about this in, in articles as well. My, my favorite course on leadership was a course taught through Shakespeare. And, you know, so, and I even suggested like, that's an example where the liberal arts could actually go on offense, right? Instead of always being on defense around this, you know, it's not relevant anymore. It's not, you know, it's not needed. It's not what employers are looking for. Quite the opposite. What if you took some of those valuable courses from the liberal arts, like the leadership course I took uh, taught through Shakespeare and actually carved that out as nuggets for corporate education and for training for other types of, uh, of skill training. Those are things that would be really valuable, but I don't think we've you know, higher ed hasn't thought about unbundling liberal arts in an offensive way, right? You know, meaning going, going on offense, it's always kind of been put into a defensive posture around it. So there's, there's opportunities for innovation for liberal arts, for sure. You know, I, I've been on, I've been uh, a director of four different public companies and probably four private companies. And in every single one of them, the question of succession planning is always a big thing. And I always say the same thing. You cannot understand succession planning unless you've read King Lear. So as far as I'm concerned, your I leadership so. course has to include, has to in include that. And yeah. um, 
No, I, I think uh, I think we have a good story to tell. Um, you know, my undergraduate degree is in English. My master's degree is in English. My PhD is, is in English. I wouldn't give up that training and what I what I learned for anything in the in the world. Um, but there's something also that I learned in, in 25 years of, of business. There are skills that that you can build on, um, even though the English degree becomes kind of like a gauzy filter through which you you see things. Yeah, and so that's a good segue too to one of the other. Uh, I, th I thought the the most uh, entertaining point you made in this article was about uh, creating a dean for the rest of your life position. So tell us about that. That was a fun one. Well, you think about um, a university president's cabinet, right? And you've got you've got the the dean of enrollment who uh, deals with students on the way in, um, and you've got the dean of the faculty um, who deals with student life, um, academic life while they're there. And then there's another yeah. dean of student life, and, you know, whatever. Who's the who's the dean of the rest of your life? Who's the one who focuses on what happens to students um, when they're ready to leave the university? Um, and so I, I believe there ought to be, you know, a cabinet level position, elevate that, um, but don't isolate it. It's not just about the perfect resume and interview skills and, you know, knowing what the, what the labor market needs. It needs to be integrated throughout the college experience. And faculty need to feel that sense of urgency and connectedness to what they do in the classroom and the lab and what's gonna to happen to that student later on. Um, it's always driven me crazy that you could ask most faculty what the graduation rate is for their university, for their department. Well, try asking them what the employment track record is. What happens to most of their majors? What kind of jobs do they go on to do? That's again, sort of not what they do. Now, maybe the whole incentive structure for, for faculty has to change. That's a really heavy lift. I would settle for, um, for another focus in the university that, that continues to shine a bright light on the fact that you've got these students for a while. You know, many of them, particularly at an institution like mine at the City University of New York, they're working, they have family responsibilities. How do you, how do you help them achieve their goals while still remaining true to your academic values? I firmly believe that can be done. And I think this is the moment where higher education really has to make it happen. Yeah, it's a, it's a provocative idea and I love how you're thinking about it. You know, I've thought about it from a number of angles. Lifelong learning, for example, happens to be the most commonly used words in college mission statements. And yet you step back from that and you go, well, that sounds awesome, but how are we actually delivering on that? I mean, we don't have any outcome metrics for lifelong learning. And one of the other things I was reflecting on recently too, which is related to this is that most alumni relationships are owned by a development office at the university, right? Alumni relations is fundamentally a development, a fundraising type of function. And if, and if a university believes that the relationship with alumni is owned by the development office, we miss these opportunities to make that relationship a lifelong learning, educational enrichment relationship in some ways, right? To be provocative, you could say, hey, move that alumni relationship from development to the provost's office or this new dean of the rest of your life. And we might actually accomplish this thing called lifelong learning because we'll think of alumni as ongoing students of some form as opposed to just fundraising vessels, right? 
you're a hundred percent right. And by the way, it would still serve the aims of advancement because yep. students, you know, alums would be thinking about their institution as the source of continuous learning. You know, now I've changed my job. I need to learn right. something new. Now I need more technical skills. I need to know something new. So it would, it would again, be a both um, rather than, than either, either or. Um, but, you know, and I see, I see little signs of, of that happening. And, and I hope that the new immersion in, uh, in remote learning will help to advance that because, because schools have gotten a little more comfortable with, well, a lot more comfortable with, um, with teaching outside the classroom. And so that provides whole new ways to connect to faculty with, with, um, with content that they couldn't do before. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, with with online being, you know, kind of the norm now as a result of the pandemic, you think of the incremental cost of inviting alumni to join an online, you know, asynchronous course, right, or whatever it might be. They might be able to audit that course. They might be invited to participate in discussions with undergrads. Think of the educational value of an undergraduate, you know, uh, you know, uh, set of students interacting with alumni. I mean, there's just so many advantages to it. But if we're not talking about physical restrictions and alumni having to travel somewhere, and you know, it just it just opens up so many possibilities. So I I hope that we see a lot of innovation on how universities embrace alumni and the ongoing learning experience. Time will tell. Um, but uh, but I like your idea of the dean of the rest of your life. Well, it, it, it actually raises um, one of those big open questions. Um, let's say we get COVID under control, God willing. Um, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a vaccine, there are, there are better therapeutics, um, and cautiously we begin to creep back into, um, into some elements of our, of our old life. What happens to online learning? Do colleges that were you know, defiantly um, focused on residential learning go back to that, shut off the computers, okay, now we're all back in the, in the classroom. Or do we retain some of those features that, I mean, let's face it, in, in certain sort of subjects, things where adaptive learning can be really helpful and, um, and you know, intervention at the, at the right time, um, the scalability of, of online learning has a lot to offer, a lot to offer. So I sincerely hope that what comes next is not shut down the computers, we're back to the classroom, but, but new ways of thinking about hybrids and retention of those best elements of remote learning. One of which, you know, you just touched on, which is bring alumni back into the classroom. I mean, multi-generational classrooms, what could be better than that? That would be absolutely fantastic. Right, yeah, I'm a huge fan of the idea. I was uh, reflecting on my dad's experience in a one-room schoolhouse, which is a bit related here. You know, he's always thought of it as like this big disadvantage compared to the big, you know, blue ribbon public school that I went to that had every facility you could imagine. And, but what, what, when he starts to tell the stories of that one-room schoolhouse, right? Like he had to teach other students, right? Uh, you know, if, if you had a kid who was really advanced in math, they could just work on math with the older kids. You know, there were all kinds of multi-generational interactions in those one-room schoolhouses. And although I'm not suggesting we go back to the literal physical one-room schoolhouse, that's a, that's a vision for the future in terms of thinking about how online can kind of interact with that. And, uh, and I think that's another opportunity for universities to think outside of the single student they serve 
in a degree-seeking program and to think about non-degree education, think about multi-generational or, you know, just long, long, you know, lifelong learning education. So one of the points I wanted to end on before we run out of time, Ann, you've, you know, you've had lots of experience with public education. You've been on the board, for example, of for-profit university uh, when you were on the board of Apollo. Uh, you're on the board of Princeton University now. So you've seen, you've seen public, private, for-profit higher education. Just for a minute, right? Like I, one of my, my thoughts about this is that we, we think of like these things as pitted against one another sometimes, right? And I, I mean, there might be examples of that, but what, what I think more of is that each of them have unique advantages and of course, each has unique disadvantages, depending on how you look at it. But just from, from wearing those hats across all three of those uh, sectors of the higher ed sector, where do you see the, the biggest highlights coming from each one of those uh, areas? It's a great question. Um, I have to say that I am uh, quite agnostic. Um, it's, it's like asking about religion or something like that. Um, there's a lot of paths to enlightenment, there's a lot of a lot of ways to get educated, and uh, and um, I'm a firm believer that each one of them has has certain benefits. Um, look, a, a public institution is uh, is to me the bulwark of democracy and the best springboard for upward mobility and economic opportunity that has ever been invented. Um, so I I have to say that. Um, I believe wholeheartedly in the importance of, of public education. Um, For-profit education, um, you know, we talked a little bit before about urgency and, um, and a, 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 a laser focus on, uh, on careers. Some of the for-profit institutions, the better ones, um, do a, a darn good job at that. And they, they really see the student's success as their success. Full stop. Um, that's really important. And you know, although maybe their pressure for quarterly earnings, um, you know, and and uh, and the profit motive, can introduce um, other other more uh, unseemly uh, prejudices. Nevertheless, um, they do have that sense of accountability and performance. They they've got to perform. Um, private institutions. There will there will always be private institutions um, and. You know, I consider myself um, to have been educationally blessed to have had uh, really um, institutions that, that cared about me, um, whether they were public or private. I never had a, uh, an experience personally with a, with a, a for-profit institution, but you know, the, the ability to, um, to raise lots of money either through, um, through public funding or through um, private philanthropy or through the public markets, these are all, they're all different funding streams. And, um, and that's why I feel so passionately that this is a use it or lose it moment for, particularly for public institutions. We've got to restore public trust, public confidence in the value of higher education, which means yep. as we move into this new administration, caring about the affordability of higher education, caring about the load of, of student debt, caring about fair financial aid policies going, going forward. Um, it's really, a, it's, a, it's a unique moment for the, for the country. Um, and, and I, since I want institutions to survive, I hope that's, uh, I hope they get the right balance. 
Yeah, I think you've nailed a lot of those key points in terms of, you know, uh, affordability, not just thinking about more financial aid, but actually working to reduce the cost of higher education, right? Those are very, very different parts of the affordability, uh, you know, kind of conversation. And, and then to your point about the kind of declining public support for higher ed, you know, I'd, I'd add on top of the cost and student debt, you know, concerns, probably on par with those as the biggest concerns, which is the work readiness of graduates. And so it goes back to your points earlier about not, you know, saying the word vocational with a sneer and bringing continuing education from, you know, in from the cold and a lot of those points, those are going to be mission critical to serving students, right, from a mission perspective and also, quite frankly, uh, rebuilding the, you know, the public trust in higher ed. So I agree with you too. I think it's it's amazing. One of the strengths of the U.S. higher education system it is that it is incredibly diversified. We have all kinds of different types of institutions, and that in and of itself is probably its greatest strength. So, Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'll look forward to following your posts and articles and all the other things that you're going to be uh, involved in discussing. So, thank you very much for for your time today, and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Thanks everybody for joining us. Thanks so much.